Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Love of Life podcast. We're happy you're here. We're going to make some observations about things that we're reading in the Bible and some books. I might have a couple of jokes for Courtney uh, and some other questions, so stay with us. Any education apart from Jesus Christ is for us miseducation. And it produces not education nor an educated man, but a new race of barbarians who are today busily destroying their civilization. Humanistic education is the institutionalized love of death. Christian education because it serves him who says, I am the way, the truth, and the light, is the love of life. This is the Love of Life podcast, conversations with Jesse and Courtney. So we have some scriptures. Do you want to get started first? And you get scriptures? started. You get us started. You want me to get started, okay? Yeah. Great, wonderful. Um, well, I guess I read the book of uh, Jeremiah a few months ago, and uh, this morning I just kind of went back to a couple of passages that I thought were just meaningful and really, I don't want to say applicable to today's time period, because again, a lot of what we see in Jeremiah is in Jeremiah's day, right? But sure. there's But there's other observations and things we can draw on based in Jeremiah that obviously we we glean from in our life. And we can look at things uh, that the Lord did. And um, some of those things he can do again. Um, you know, when it talks about, for instance, I, uh, idols of the heart, uh, there are, you know, I mean, idols of the heart are still a problem with us today. Sure. But uh, a couple of things caught my eye. And then I want to po- pose a question. Pose a question? Yeah. Yeah, pose, not poise. Pose. I want to pose a question to you. So um, this is Jeremiah 9, verse 23. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness judgment and righteousness in the earth for in these i delight says the lord behold the days are coming says the lord that i will punish all who are circumcised with the uncircumcised egypt judah edom the people of ammon moab and all who are in the farthest corners who dwell in the wilderness for all these nations are uncircumcised and all the house of israel are uncircumcised in the heart i thought it was just a quick thought question that I had is when we think sometimes about our own nation or the nations of the world, we frame this question, or I know we do, we frame this question in our minds often, uh, the Abram Lot question or Abraham Lot question, which is, you know, God's about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah Mm -hmm. and he prays, you know, if you find 50 people, will you save it? If you find 40 people, will you save it? And here you have uh, a nation, you have Israel, God says they are uncircumcised in the heart. So God is essentially going to bring judgment and he's going to punish not only the heathen nations here, sort of like the Sodom and Gomorrah, Egypt, Judah, 
but he's also going to judge the house of Israel because of their hearts. So I, I thought it kind of adds to the conversation um, when we try to delineate and understand, if we even really can completely, uh, the judgment of the Lord when it comes upon a nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, here, God is going to judge Israel because of the state of their heart. Mm-hmm. Not because they're just heathens and pagans and they have no knowledge of God. Well, and Judah would fall in that camp too. Right. They were circumcised people. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I always find great comfort in the fact that even if there are a few that are faithful, that love the Lord, that he can preserve them. And I don't know that that's necessarily saying he's not going to preserve or have a special protection for those whose hearts and bodies are circumcised. Sure. But... Yeah, that is it just kind of like the wheat and the tares grow up together. You're going to have circumcised and uncircumcised, both experiencing judgment. Mm-hmm. That kind of seems to be consistent. Yeah. Yeah. I love the beginning of that, though, especially about uh, how the wise shouldn't boast in their wisdom and or the rich and their riches, like all those things come from yep. the Lord. They should be grateful that they know him. Yeah. That and, Right, that is the greatest treasure. That is the greatest thing. That is the greatest glory, is to know and understand the Lord. Hey, I just read a scripture that says, the fear of the Lord is whoever's Israel, maybe? Israel's treasure. Mm. It says that same word of treasure. The wow. fear of the Lord is their treasure. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still like trying to understand all of fearing the Lord and how that... I guess everything that that word fear means, because there is an implication of love in Mm -hmm. it, but there's also an implication of know that he is mighty and know that he is perfectly just and know what you deserve and know where you stand in relation to him, uh, of a right fear of him, that he is awesome and blameless and perfect. No. No. Gosh, I want to go down the rabbit trail question of, so... (laughs) Regarding just a nation in particular, uh, is there is there a set number like in Abram's or Abraham's day with and Lot, mm. where God looks on the hearts of people and says, "Okay, I'm going to judge this nation." I mean, I would say, and I know we've said several times on this podcast, and we talk, you know, in private conversation. It it appears that we're we're facing in some ways measures of judgment. I mean, fire is not falling down from heaven. Thank God. Mm-hmm. But there's definite uh, a measure of judgment, it appears, uh, in the West, specifically. And I think some of that, I mean, there's there, there's a lot of reasons, but I, I, I do think there's idols of the heart, and we are clearly led, and I'm not saying by and large every teacher is like this, but I think our 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 teachers have failed us. I don't know if it's the chicken and the egg thing. I don't know if our if our teachers have failed us first or really the hearts of people have gone astray. So the teachers we've been given, the teachers that we have, the ones that are coming out of seminary, and again, not all of them, I realize sure. not all of them, but um, so this is kind of a blanket statement, a general statement, but I think it's I think it's generally true. We have specific examples of good pastors, good teachers, good people that are preaching and teaching the whole counsel of God. Mm-hmm. But there's... Um, I don't know. There's there's this kind of measure of judgment and judgment begins in the house of the Lord. Mm-hmm. You know, we can like Israel have if you will an uncircumcised heart. 
where we need to be seeking repentance as a people. Yeah, that actually makes me think of one of the scriptures that stood out to me um, this week in Second Chronicles, which you'll get it. Um, it's Second Chronicles fifteen three. For a long time, Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. But when in their distress they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him, he was found by them. Um, so I don't know, just kind of in that same vein of they were without the true God, they were without a teaching priest, specifically like a good teacher, someone to explain the word, and they were without the law. So you've even pointed out things recently like that clicking about how necessary teachers are mm-hmm. and good teachers and maybe that kind of factors into some of that you know if there's a famine of good teachers there's a famine of people knowing the true god there's a famine of his law mm-hmm. um what is that scripture that you reference about teachers and like just their importance in understanding the word what is their importance in our understanding the word did i, I just know. did i reference it recently mm, to me <laughs> to you we talked about it not too long ago just when you were kind of pondering where do teachers fall into and books and aids helping us understand scripture didn't did we talk about that last time on the podcast with timothy was it for was it first second timothy where paul no it was a different it was a different scripture okay about um yeah i can't remember where it was but for you it was like making that like click Mm -hmm. that we need teachers well, I know Paul. I know that. Paul mentions it specifically when he's talking about teachers who are able to teach, who are um, men of the word, men of uh, they're they're literally readers. You know, Paul brings up reading and not just the word, but he mentions manuscripts and things of that nature. So I don't know if that's what you're alluding to, or yeah. if it was perhaps a different conversation. Think- we have quite a few conversations. <laughs> we do. Yeah. <laughs> And no, quite a few children. I, I can't make you remember it, but it was <laughs> it it was a one of those things that made just the role of teachers in explaining the word like make sense. Hmm. You ponder it. Darn it. Maybe it'll come to Okay, you. maybe it'll come to me. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it will. Yeah. I do know one of the things that a, a book I was just gonna highlight, not really quote or anything, was uh, there it is. Through New Eyes, if you are listening to the podcast as opposed to watching. It's Through New Eyes by James Jordan. Uh, it's it's an older book. I think it's from the early 90s, maybe late 80s. But um, you haven't gone through this yet, have you? I started it. Did you start it. this? It doesn't work well when we read a book at the same time. No, it doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> because so you steal it. You're still you're still reading it. I stole it for a while. I'm behind you. You, you finish it. It's because you take it off and hide it from me. Well. I find it somewhere located I mean, in the bathroom. Or you I gotta, find it under you covers. You read where you can. Under blankets. Yeah, you gotta read where you can. <laughs> anyway, uh, I, I didn't realize, and maybe you've at least started enough to know, because he starts with this symbolism, like symbolism, typology, types and shadows. I knew a lot about the types and the shadows that we see from the Old Testament and how it relates to the New. But James Jordan's at a different level. <laughs> he takes it to, an, to such an extreme, and it's fine, because I do think he's, he's at least accurate in his observations here. 
But all but to hearken back to what you just said about teachers, one of the things that he makes mention is he talks about the sun, the moon, and the stars in this. And there's different there's different symbolism for stars in scripture. And one of the symbols of a teacher is a star. And that has stuck with me in the last several weeks of reading this book, and we've talked about this, how even some of these teachers in our life, who we know personally and who are afar from us, we 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 jokingly and yet at the same time almost reverently refer to these men as stars or the constellations. Yeah, kind which of is, guiding. Which is kind of fun, but it's also biblical. Guiding life. Symbolically speaking. So I know that Jonathan Edwards is also really well known for his typology, and you have gleaned from that through the years. How different is James B. Jordan's take on that, would you say? I, I wouldn't say, well, okay, so someone that may have read both of those men for years may easily point out if there are differences. I don't really see a great amount of difference, per se. Okay. Uh, they're, both, they're both different men, um, obviously. <laughs> I mean, it's a dumb thing to say. Uh, but <laughs> they're different guys. Um, no, but for real. I mean, so they have different, they, they almost have different personalities in their writing, mm. too. Edward, you're talking about somebody in the mid 1700s. You know, Jordan, you're talking about a guy that is still alive mm-hmm. and is a part of our time period and such. Um, I, I wouldn't know, but I, I will just say both men, when it comes to symbolism and types, have a profound, deep way of reading and looking at the scriptures, and I've gleaned a lot from both men. Yeah, well, just from reading the beginning of this, one thing that struck me is how he talks about um, not just like a Christian worldview, but like a biblical worldview, meaning you need the Bible, you need to use the Bible's language to understand the Bible. Like Mm. the Bible has literature in it, it has its own types and symbols, and it needs to be understood in light of that Mm -hmm. and a lot of times the bible even makes clear like this is what this is a type of so like you can't put your worldview on the bible you have to let the bible's worldview speak for itself yeah that's very important especially uh in a section when he gets to talking about the old testament because we clearly see as not only new testament believers but people that live in 2022 we see things optically through this lens of, well, I don't like this in the Old Testament or that. Mm -hmm. We have to castigate and get rid of or dispose of some of our preconceptions that we have been um, manipulated into believing Mm -hmm. uh, as, as Christians, as people, and the way that we render and look at the Old Testament. And and it's, it's, I, I hate to use the word simple, but the Old Testament, according to at least Jordan in this, and the way that he d- he spells out um, a lot of the things that we New Testament believers uh, don't conceive of the Old Testament. We don't conceive of the Old Testament properly. Mm-hmm. So we think of, oh, wow, like look at all of these laws and these stringent things that they had to do. And could they even work? Could they, could, could they literally do anything on the Sabbath? Was it, as an example, he I recently just read this. It, it was time for Sabbath that is going to synagogue or temple. And then it was rest. But it wasn't some crazy legalistic, you can't, you sit in a chair all day, for instance, on the Sabbath and don't move or anything mm-hmm. like that. 
um, there's a lot of the laws that he points out and with uh, a, a very, I don't want to call it simplistic because that makes it sound like it's dumb, but with just a clear understanding of the Old Testament, um, he points out different things. Like it's more straightforward? It's far more straightforward. Okay. Yeah. That reminds me of the, on the Sabbath, the guy who carried a stick. Yeah. And then was killed. Yeah. Um, that was something that we were talking about. Some of the Old Testament things that are kind of hard to understand, even with Andrea Schwartz, that was one that she mentioned. Sure. Um, we recently heard in Sunday school, they talked about that. Do you remember the answer? Mm-hmm. That yeah. it wasn't just that he was carrying a stick and like that's bad, that's work. It was that he was carrying a stick to purposely stoke a fire. Yes. And that was bad because... Why? I can't remember. Or wasn't the only was, fire that was supposed to be lit was the fire of Yahweh? Yeah. Wasn't like it something in, to do with that? In the temple, part of the sacrifices, that was the fire. So to go off and build his own fire, that yeah. was the thing. So it was just more, there was more to it than just, oh, he picked up a stick and yes. that's bad. Or even like the guy who reaches out his hand to um, steady the ark. Mm-hmm. And then, I think there's two of them. They die instantly because you're not supposed to touch the ark. It's one guy or two guys. You sure that's not Indiana Jones? No. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. But there's even context in scripture around that about how the people that were carrying it were not even the people that were supposed to carry it because only like the the priestly line was supposed to carry it. They were supposed to use poles. Mm. Like what they had it on wasn't the proper thing. Like there were all these things that were done wrong. It was yeah. the wrong people. They were carrying it on top of something instead of by the poles. It wouldn't have fallen if they had carried it the way God told them to carry it. Yeah. So, yeah, we can look at some of those things, some of God's judgments that come quickly and swiftly and go, wait, that wasn't fair. That wasn't right. But God's always right in all that he does. Yes. And sometimes even just digging a little more or understanding the context around it does even to us make us go, oh, I get that. And sometimes we don't get it. Yeah. But we just yeah. know everything God does is right. And yeah. he sees everything perfectly. Yeah. Well, I'll be anxious for you to read his section on the the Old Testament because okay. the way that he just kind of spells it out in our 2000, well, back in 1980 when he wrote it or whatever, our modern day understanding of the Old Testament. It's just we we need to see it through a different lens, mm -hmm. through a different through through different eyes. Not yeah. to take away <laughs> from the title or anything, but he he really does expound it and expound upon it in such a way that you go huh, okay, like this is, you know, well, first and foremost, when we are in the Old or New Testament, we start with God is the creator, we are the creation. He is the potter, we are the clay. Mm -hmm. so starting off in a humble fashion, or at least attempting to, mm -hmm. is, um, it's it's far greater than when we bring our own, well, I I would do this or I would do that. Well, who are we, man? Who are yeah, we, you know, who, who, sure. who are we to question the creator about Anything. anything he has ultimately set up and I, I and you know just expounding on that i think if if god which he did but if god is just po posing a, a theoretical that we know to be a concrete reality if god made everything he gets to decide <laughs> he yeah. gets to make the rules right he gets to say yes and no and i made you as an object of destruction or if i made you as an object of mercy he gets to decide. He is the sovereign God. He is omniscient. He is eternal. 
he made us and not we ourselves. Yep. Right? And that goes back to giving you a reason to love and to fear him. Yes. Um, it also makes me think about your saying about reading the Old Testament. It's almost impossible not to come with our present day, 21st century, American, Western, just ideas in our mind. Yeah. Which is the importance of reading the Bible, but also old books. Mm-hmm. Like, I think Lewis is one of the ones that says for every new book you must read, like try to read at least three old ones. Right. Because people in a previous time, they have their own certain things that they're, are, they're funny about or that are specific to their time, their culture that they can't see out of. But we can see outside of their own, you know, things that encumber them in their specific time, but we can't see out of our own. Yeah. So it's helpful when we jump around to older books and we can easily go, oh, that was a funny thought. Like everyone thought that back then in the 1800s or the 1300s, and we don't think that now, but it helps us not be so blind to our own hindrances. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep, that's very true. Yeah. So also about typology... Unless yes. you're going to la- launch into something else. No, go ahead. Um, in Family Devotions, you've been reading through Acts. Mm. And tonight and last night, mm-hmm. we're reading about Saul. Yep. And there's just some more there, yeah. which is really cool. Yeah. You want to tell us about well, that? Go, well, go ahead. You brought it okay. up. And, I, and I'll, I'll fill in details as you go along. Yeah. So, Although you're, you're kind of the detail queen, so I might not get I a chance to... Details. I might not get a chance here. So okay. it's Acts chapter 9, okay. where Saul is converted... Mm-hmm. Um, he sees a light from heaven. Jesus speaks to him. Yes. And asks about why he's persecuting him and all that. And we've talked about some of that previously, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he is blind for three days mm-hmm. and he doesn't eat or drink. Yep. He's in darkness for three days. Yep. And I guess just the significance of the three days as we were going over it was like, oh, yeah. wow, that's cool. So then we talked about, okay, so what else? What else is there about three days? Well, Jesus was in the ground for three days in darkness, mm-hmm. <laughs> no eating and drinking under the earth or in the earth, dead before he was raised. Um, and also Jonah, the picture of Jonah and the whale. He was in the belly of a fish for three days um, in darkness. And so like just kind of even some of the parallel between especially Jonah and Saul, because both were running from God and both were have an encounter yeah. and then they're in darkness for three days and Jonah spit out, um, out of the water. And then Paul, Saul, sure. sorry, Saul, Saul. Well, well, he's, still, Saul. he's still Saul at this time. Yeah. yeah. Saul is sent, um, and Ananias comes Ananias to Saul, comes to Saul because the messenger comes to Ananias and tells him to go to Saul, yeah. which of course he's like, are you sure you have the right guy? Cause he's been killing people. <laughs> he just killed Steven. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but God says, no, he's my chosen. He's my apostle. So he goes to Saul and the Lord tells him to pray with Saul that he might regain his sight. And he prays and something like scales falls from his eyes. And then you pointed out like Jonah was in the belly of a, whale a fish that has scales a fish like we don't know scales. if it was a whale so okay a big fish like sorry children's <laughs> church it's a whale <laughs> right but, okay a giant fish a giant but fish the parallel even from like probably scales, scales and a fish yeah that scales fall off his eyes yeah scales fall off his eyes and then ananias baptizes saul oh yeah so he goes into the water 
He goes into the water. Jonah comes out of the water. Jonah comes out of the water. So yeah, there's yeah. all this rich typology and symbolism, even for, cool. for traversing from the Old Testament to the New. Yeah, and I will say so. that Saul did a much better job with his charge than Jonah. Yeah. I'm still always perplexed by the way that Jonah ends. Like, he's disgruntled that the Lord would have mercy on these Ninevites, and then he runs from him. He's, like, obviously has a few days to think about it and his choices and his disobeying God. He gets the second chance. He's spit out, and he goes, and he does the right thing, but then he's still angry. Yeah. Like, he ends totally on a note of having a bad attitude. It's, yeah, that's always like, what? Right. What a bad ending. Like, you could have been such a redeemed character, but no. you're still, he, like, he still doesn't have this understanding of, if God wants to have mercy, he'll have mercy. If God wants to grow up a fig tree overnight and then cause it to wither, he can. Was it a fig tree? I believe it was a fig tree. Yeah. Just that, and Jonah has more mercy on the tree that God kills than on the Ninevites that he wanted God's wrath and judgment to consume. It is a fig tree, right? Because Christ also curses the fig tree. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I think so. And it's a fig tree in Jonah's story as well. I know there's a tree that grows up, but is it a fig tree? Okay. I don't know for for sure if Jonah's a fig tree, but Jesus, it is a fig tree. We need to have our own research person Fact standing check. standing alongside that we can kind of call out like Rogan does with his guy or whatever. He's like, hey, check this. Get on Google. Yeah, exactly. Jonah but under the tree. I believe I, I, I believe it was a the fig Lord tree. The Lord appointed a vine. A vine? A vine plant. Okay. And? I don't know. It's it's not plant. It's a vine? So it's a vine. I don't know. Under the gourd tree, this translation says. I don't know. Okay, we'll research it and we'll know next time. Okay. I'm not sure. We'll fact check it. Or somebody can fact check for us and let us know. There's a lot of information out there on the internet. There's a lot. Well, there's a lot of information in the Bible. Well, that too. (laughs) Well, I'm just saying like to just reference it. I just looked it up like on the internet really quick. Okay. So I'm getting mixed messages. Yes. But yeah, but that's neat. Speaking of good endings, you had an observation from Esther you wanted to give, right? Oh, yeah. So I told the story of Esther last time and the often overlooked portion mm-hmm. that Mordecai tells her before. He's like, you were born for such a time as this. Yes. But there's a whole lot more to the story that's really, really great um, that's also happening. So one other element that's happening is that at one point, Mordecai... Here's a plot to kill the king. These two mm-hmm. guys are planning. And he um, sends word to the king. And mm-hmm. so because of that, these guys are taken care of. I think they're killed. And um, the king, is his life is saved because of Mordecai. So that's happening. And then Haman is the bad guy. Okay. Who yep. is the one that gets the king to write the thing to kill all the Jews. And he cannot stand Mordecai. Um, and so he is disgruntled about him and at some point he talks to his family and he's like i just don't know what to do about this guy just the sight of him bothers me and they're like you should go to the king and have him executed have him hung he's like that's a great idea so he (laughs) builds these like super tall so many feet tall gallows like Mm -hmm. right outside of his house and he is planning to tell the king well there's a night that the king can't sleep well and he wakes up and he's like bring me the book of something that where they've written things down and he's like that mordecai who um told about that plot against me what was done was he honored and they're like no nothing was ever done 
And so he's like, oh my goodness, like I need to reward this guy. He saved my life. So about that time, Haman comes in to talk to the king and he's going from Mordecai's execution. And the king is like, what would you do, Haman, for someone who, the, what should the king do for someone the king is really pleased with and wants to honor? And all of a sudden, Haman's like, oh, you must mean me. So he's like, <laughs> I would give him a crown. I'd put him on a horse and have him go through the city and have somebody shouting something about how the king's favors upon him and robes and all this stuff. And he's like, okay, wonderful. Go get Mordecai and do everything you've said. Don't leave anything out. And like, Haman is <laughs> like, what? Like, that's the guy I want dead. So he has to like be a part of honoring Mordecai. Um, and then whenever... Queen Esther is begging for the life of the Jews. Then she says, she points out that the person who um, is against her and her people is Haman. And so the king's like furious and wants him dead. Hmm. And I might be leaving out some important details. Just read Esther. It's not very long. But anyway, by the end, the king is mad at Haman for what he's tried to do for his evil deeds. They're found out. And he has him executed on the gallows that he built for Mordecai. Mm. So it's that proverb about mm. like the pit that they dug for others. They fall into themselves. Mm -hmm. It's like this beautiful, like everyone gets justice. Everything is right. The people that did the right thing are honored. And then the person that's conniving and trying to weave all this evil. Um, falls into their own pit falls into the pit he dug for another yeah he was after yeah. mordecai's head and then it's his hey amen to that yeah so anyway that's just the whole book of esther is neat but that was a whole huge other portion that yeah i didn't talk about i was like oh i should have that was really <laughs> great too <laughs> and i think our sons especially will appreciate that so we got to read that to oh them yeah soon. we'll have to do that really soon yeah no that's good that's good um okay let's talk about sex Okay. No, I'm teasing. Um, <laughs> actually, I'm kind of not because this is uh, Letters to Malcolm, which is by C.S. Lewis. I believe it came out posthumously, like right after, uh, right after Lewis's death. I want to say, I could be wrong about that though, but I think it did. Anyway, uh, he says in chapter three, I'm really going to talk about prayer because that's what he gets to. But he starts off this chapter saying, "Oh, for mercy's sake, not you too." Why? Just because I raise an objection to your parallel between prayer and a man making love to his own wife, must you trot out all the old rigmarole about the holiness of sex and start lecturing me as if I were a uh, Manichaean? No. Uh, Manashian? The word is uh, Manashian. Yes. I'll go with that. Okay, but yeah. Okay, so uh, I know that in most circles nowadays, one need only mention sex to everyone in the room emitting this gas. But I do hope, not you, didn't I make it plain that I objected to your image solely on the ground of its nonchalance or presumption? I'm not saying anything against sex. Sex in itself cannot be moral or immoral any more than gravitation or nutrition. The sexual behavior of human beings can... The sexual of human beings can... And like their economic or political or agricultural or parental or filial behavior, it is sometimes good and sometimes bad. And the sexual act, when lawful, which means chiefly when consistent with good faith and charity, can, like all other merely natural acts, whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, the apostle says, be done to the glory of God and then be holy. 
Um, but then C.S. Lewis, so he goes on this like sex tangent right at the beginning of this chapter. But then he starts talking about prayer, which is interesting. Uh, he, he starts talking about uh, we shouldn't pray when we're about to go to bed because it's the time when we're most sleepy and it's the time where we drift off. And he says, in talking of sleepiness, I entirely agree with you that no one in his senses, if he has any power of ordering his own day, would reserve his chief prayers for bedtime. Obviously, the worst possible hour for any action which needs concentration. The trouble is that thousands and thousands of unfortunate people can hardly find any other time. Uh, even for us who are the lucky ones, it is not always easy. My own plan, when hard-pressed, is to siege any time and place, however unsuitable, in preference to the last waking moment. So, in this letter, he's basically saying, don't save your prayer time for the last thing that you do. Because mm. you might fall asleep. Because you might fall asleep. <laughs> yes. And then he says that a clergyman once told me that a railway compartment, if one has to if one has it to oneself, is an extremely good place to pray in because there is just the right amount of distraction, the clergyman told Lewis. <laughs> when I asked him, Lewis says, when I asked him to explain, he said that perfect silence and solitude left one more open to the distractions which come from within, and that a moderate amount of external distraction was easier to cope with. Uh, I don't find this so myself, Lewis says, but I can imagine it. So there's this uh, there's this sense of things can be too quiet. If you sit into a if you sit in a perfectly quiet forest and there's nothing about you, uh, you have opportune. There's an oppor- There's a great opportunity for one to get distracted in their prayers. So this clergyman says basically jump into a railway compartment <laughs> and go do it in there. Interesting. So yeah. I found these observations interesting. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, when we have our prayer time together and we try to we try to pray every day, although it doesn't always happen, um, it seems that, and Lewis mentions this too somewhere in the chapter, uh, walking or mm. even pacing is a good thing. And I noticed too, especially when the weather is nice, the best time, the most, the time that we're most um, scheduled to pray is when the weather is nice enough to where we can go on a walk on our driveway mm-hmm. and just go up and down the driveway and pray with one another. Yeah, it's that good mix of enough distraction because you're walking, um, but that you can focus. Yeah. It provides more focus somehow than if you're just sitting. I guess because you're already doing something, so you're not thinking about what should I be doing or what could I be doing. Right. You're, yeah. Yeah. No, it helps with concentration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, another quick little aside from Lewis, and this is, we're reading this book. It's C.S. Lewis. You can't see that, so I'll just read it to you. C.S. Lewis Letters to Children. Um, and they're really interesting, right? They are, yeah. These kids, like, over time write to him, and he writes them back, which is... Yeah. I can't imagine, like... He had a lot of fan mail. He did, and he was really diligent with it. Like, a lot of his time was spent writing, and he even had his brother Warney help him. Yeah. Um, right, but he was really dedicated to his fans and even kids. Like, I love that. Nowadays, I can't imagine, like, somebody so big, like, he even doodles sometimes in his okay. letters, like, back to them. I can't imagine somebody huge, like, taking the time 
to write back to children and like to doodle in there. I don't know. Just everything about the personal touch of that mm-hmm. is so sweet. Yeah. And yeah. humble. Oh, yeah. And yeah. he's very humble in his letters. His, he, he kind of talks at their level. And not talking down to them, mm-hmm. but he is really engaged with them in conversation. And the book only has Lewis's letters to the kids, not the children's letters. But you get the understanding and the gist of what Lewis is responding to mm-hmm. in this. And uh, one of the things that he says, this is uh, June 9th, 1954. Lewis is writing from Maudlin College to Hugh, Anne, Noli, Nicholas, Martin, Rosamond, Matthew, and Miriam. He says, congratulations on your new baby sister, Deborah, to you all. I like red hair. I never saw a picture of a baby shower before. I had to put up my umbrella to look at it. It's like a dad joke. It's like a ridiculous dad joke. (laughs) It's just a corny dad joke from C.S. Lewis buried in one of his letters, which is just great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Oh, yeah. And he also, I didn't realize this, but he says here, he says, tell Nikki I don't smoke cigars. I knew he smoked a pipe, but there it is. He he says it. He doesn't smoke cigars. Kind of of sad that he didn't, actually. (laughs) Well, he smokes pipes a lot, so. Yes. Oh yes, he did. Okay, so as far as books goes, that's that is what I that's what I have. Do you have any other books or observations no or other books? I have um, a joke for you. Okay, you do. Yep. Here's the joke. I've been trying it out on some people. Okay. Okay. Uh, what do you call the wife of your youth? I don't know. Tell me. <laughs> Prime rib. Nice. <laughs> All right. There nice. you go. Nice. It's clever. That's yeah. a dad joke. Yeah, but I've been telling dad jokes it's before cute. I was a dad, so it's okay. Yeah, so it works. Yeah, uh-huh. I thought that was pretty good. It's cute. Yeah, yeah. it's clever. Yeah, a few of few of my friends really liked it and thought it was funny. One person called it a dad joke, which is fine. Yeah. But what do you call the wife of your youth? Prime rib. It's cute. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> Anything else? Are you good? I, I think we can end on that. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that's a great. That's a great way to end. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Joke for your day. Joke for your day. Isn't that how Oscar Wilde says it's good to begin a friendship with laughter and end one? And, and it's not a bad way to end one. And it's not a bad way to end one. So hopefully you laughed. <laughs> and, and Oscar Wilde is, you know, not a great guy or whatever in his past. But you're reading The Picture of Dorian Gray. Let's end on I this. Am. I finished Dorian Gray, so I won't tell you the ending. You don't know what's going to happen. You're getting close to the end. If you haven't read The Picture of Dorian Gray... You really should. It's very interesting. It's very intriguing. And I'm curious to finish it and to start analyzing. So what is he saying? Because basically at this point, there's just all these horrible characters who have little to no redeeming qualities. And um, (laughs) who have who have unbelievably interesting or wonderful Yet terrible observations about life, yes, reality, yes. witty, very it's witty, very witty, very well, they, very well written. They praise foolishness and like. But just, the way they do it is so humorous. It is. It is. So you're like, wait, what are they saying? I don't know, but I need to know what happens. So yes. the story and the conversation is very interesting. Maybe if you finish Dorian Gray by the next episode, we can talk about that. Maybe so. Because there's gonna... a there's actually a lot to dissect. Okay. Well, yeah. so we're gonna go so I can read some more. Okay. All right. <laughs> so thanks for tuning in. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Love of Life podcast, Conversations with Jesse and Courtney. It is our duty through our schools 
to create a new one, a God-centered one. We are told in Proverbs 8, verses 35 and 36, For whoso findeth me findeth life, and shall obtain favor of the Lord. But he that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. All they that hate me love death. 